0: But yesterday we spoke to Vancouver City Councilor Jean Swanson. On Wednesday she was handing out uh, free drugs like you know heroin and meth on the downtown east side to draw attention to the need for action for clean supply. Here's Jean Swanson.
1: You know, I've mm-hmm. one guy there, Hugh Lampkin, he saved a hundred lives. So I know they're really dedicated to saving lives, and I'm convinced from what they say and from the scientific evidence that we need a safe supply of drugs to stop the overdose crisis, which is killing almost six people a day in BC. Yeah, I know it's, it's terrible. Actually, it's not an overdose crisis. It's a poison drug crisis. Yeah. The problem is that the drugs are poison.
0: So the, the drugs that you're handing out, uh, Swanson were what, and where did you get them from?
1: The two groups got them and had them tested. And, uh, I didn't ask them exactly where they got them from, but I trust them that they were tested well. And they were uh, heroin, cocaine, and meth.
0: I'm uh, joined now by Aris Nix, core organizer for DOLF, the Drug Users Liberation Front. Hi, uh, Aris, how's it going? Uh, honestly, I'm
2: pretty exhausted and <laughs> depressed, but, uh, you know, it's a sad situation. Yeah, so.
0: I imagine you were the core organizer for this uh, event or um, what we call a protest giveaway. What would you uh, tell me a bit about how this came about?
2: Uh, well, I mean, it, it's a longstanding issue. So I'm a resident of the East side. Um mm-hmm. I've spent time. I've worked for the government. I've worked in the shelter system. You know, I'm a drug user myself. Uh, and this re- event really came, came about partially in protest to what's called the Vancouver model of decriminalization, and partially because our community is very very sad and worn out and tired of watching, uh, you know, folks pass away from a totally preventable failure of public policy. Um, yeah. I'll get to the uh, the
0: decisions and the announcement yesterday, but, you know, I'm curious about how you procure these drugs. Are you, were you the one that got the drugs for Councillor Swanson?
2: Uh, so, I mean how we procured the drugs ostensibly, mm-hmm. you know, we independently fundraise money from middle-class folks, uh, well-meaning folks. So overdose crisis, or what I like to call the failure of prohibition impacts people from all strata of society. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, people use drugs if they're rich, if they're poor. Um, so we set up a donation program. We also sell merchandise to fundraise uh, and folks give us monthly donations so that we can Procure clean uh, and safe drugs and distribute them uh, in a labeled way. And, you know, as much as we can try and mimic the framework we have for the distribution of alcohol, uh, you know, we're trying to show that we can do this and this does work. Um, You know, more specifically, uh, we purchase the drugs domestically through the dark web uh, and we use a type of cryptocurrency uh, called Monero, uh, which is a privacy coin. It's an untraceable coin. Um, so really, you know, the drugs are coming from a, a more anonymized place than a specific individual. Or institution. Right. So you're
0: not walking down to an alley buying drugs from somebody or there's a process. But how do you make sure they're clean? How do you make sure that, you know, that's the big issue is, you know, clean so, so supply. Yeah,
2: ab- absolutely. So in mm-hmm. Vancouver, we have what's called FTIR spectrometry. Mm-hmm. Uh, ostensibly, if you take a sample of drugs, uh, it's a machine that uses uh, light reflection to compare your sample of drugs to a library of samples and uh, will you know tell you what is in the sample ostensibly with some margin of error Mm -hmm. we also use um, benzodiazepine and fentanyl dipstick testing uh, which gives you a positive or negative result so uh, you know the the two of the major contaminants in the drug market right now are benzos and uh, fentanyl and all the drugs we distributed were free from both of those drugs, uh, you know, which are which are highly volatile and dangerous, um, and especially if you don't know that you're going to be using them, they could potentially be fatal or cause you know very, very severe reactions. So,
0: right, and that's like my next question: How do you, you know, even clean drugs kill? So, how do you make sure that they, that these this handout that Counselor Swanson from Vancouver was part of. How do we make sure that people who don't take them away or that they were given out by the groups that she gave them to don't end up killing somebody? And, and what happens if they do for so, you?
2: So we have a data set uh, currently and mm-hmm. all the So I'm not sure if you understand how, how this distribution actually happened. So we Vancouver proposed threshold limits for how much drug someone could possess. Ostensibly, we were like, this is ridiculous and is not going to prevent people from overdosing. So, we gave each drug user group or four drug user groups in Vancouver just over the threshold limits of drugs. So, with three and a half grams of each of these hard drugs. Okay. Those groups then went and to their membership, people who are over the age of 18, people who are already using drugs, they went and distributed those drugs and then followed up with them. And ostensibly, all our data is like no one has overdosed, you know, everyone is safe. Uh, I think uh, the thing you have to understand is fentanyl is, you know, a hundred times stronger Mm -hmm. than heroin. So if someone is a daily fentanyl user and they're using heroin, realistically, the the chances that they're going to fatally overdose on those drugs, if they know exactly what they're getting, are quite low. And I think, you know, it's difficult for people to wrap their minds around this, but alcohol, if you look at the science, if you look at the data, it is, uh, you know, frequently called the most dangerous drug, Mm -hmm. both socially and personally, but it is still, you know, regulated and uh, provided in a system of regulation to prevent contamination and to prevent organized crime. Mm -hmm. With the prohibition of alcohol, you had the contamination of alcohol with methanol and you had organized crime. We, we, We are not criminals. We are not, you know, trying to make a profit. What we are trying to say is the regulatory structure around drugs has failed. We need to start... Thinking about alternatives that begin with community, begin with community consultation and use those models to keep our community safe. You know, I don't want people to have chaotic patterns of substance use as much as anyone else. And I think, you know, people want to say we don't support recovery or we don't do this or whatever. We support the full continuum of care. Mm -hmm. But I think if someone is using drugs with an unpredictable content that could kill them at any time, you're not going to be able to recover that person. You know, you can't get someone through recovery if they're going to die. So Hmm. uh, what what we're trying to say is just let's stop all this death and then then go from there. You know, we're on year five. This is year five of a publicly declared public health crisis. And it's just, I respond to an overdose, you know, at least once a week on the street. And I, I, I don't think people understand how much psychological damage that does like uh, a lot of us down here have post-traumatic stress disorder from being in the middle of this kind of crisis for so long. And we've tried, we've tried again, I've worked, I've worked for the BCCDC. I tried to, do this illicit route where we weren't doing anything illegal through advocacy, through doing that, and every single time we've been stonewalled mm-hmm. from having uh, pathways open up to us sure. to actually keep us safe. The and you
0: make a good point about the alcohol because we have so much uh, science about alcohol and how it's used and and the impacts it has. So it's an interesting uh, analogy. What are your thoughts on the announcement yesterday? And 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 are you does that give you optimism or was it not far enough? Or what are your thoughts on so, that?
2: So here's the thing about the, I like to call it, I can't believe it's not safe supply, uh, this program hmm. the government's putting right. on. So I'm actually on on the government substitution program uh, for stimulants. So I get, you know, 15 milligrams of dexedrine twice daily. Hmm. Here's the thing. I still use illegal drugs. I'm like, the, the dr- if I want to do cocaine, I can't go to my doctor and get prescribed cocaine. If so I was someone that wanted to smoke uh you know crystal meth i can't go to my doctor and get prescribed smokable crystal meth and there's something very ritualistic and personal about using drugs um so i think well i applaud the government for doing these kind of you know health interventions i'm also like it doesn't go far enough because it doesn't capture these people that want to do particular drugs, drugs in a particular way right. and what we're trying to say is let's keep everyone safe let's help each other out you know i don't think i think people are under the impression that we want the government to give everyone free drugs totally all the time mm-hmm. and that's 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 untrue it's more so we want to allow people to have access to the drugs they need when they want to use them in a clean and safe way, whether they're paying for those drugs or whether or not the government's giving them away for free is a different question. We have managed alcohol programs and you also have a liquor store. So what we're advocating is do the same thing with narcotics.
0: Okay, I appreciate you being with me today and and giving us the background on this because I think it's really important. So thanks very much. Yeah, stay safe out there. Thanks, Aris. Aris Nix is the co-organizer for Dolph, the Drug Users Liberation Front. Coming after the break, more on this with Donald McPherson, Executive Director of the Canadian Drug Policy Coalition at SFU. I'm George Affleck in for Jill Bennett. Back after the break. George Affleck for Jill Bennett. BC will be the first province in Canada Canada to permanently provide access to a safe drug supply in an effort to reduce staggering number of uh, overdose deaths. Since uh, the public health emergency was declared in 2016, over 7,000 British Columbians Columbians have died from toxic drugs. Here's uh, Sheila Malcolmson, the Minister of Mental Health and Addiction, speaking on the new changes on CKNW earlier this morning.
3: So this is going to mean right away access to... More powerful drugs, in effect, you know, just because the the mix has changed so much, people are um, craving. Their physical addiction is requiring different things. Fentanyl patches is a is a breakthrough that um, that we are now in a position to prescribe um, and are actually starting to do that already, just in very recent times. The other big change is moving this out of the responsibility of single prescribers, you know, say a family doctor or nurse practitioner who has been kind of specializing in this area. We're now asking every health authority to take this up into their programs like any other form of healthcare delivery. And that is going to expand access to people in rural and remote areas and also give the prescribing doctors or nurse practitioner that team-based support
0: Joining me to discuss this is Donald McPherson, Executive Director of the Canadian Drug Policy Coalition, part of SFU's Faculty of Health Sciences. Hi, uh, Donald. Uh, good afternoon, George. How groundbreaking is this step from the government?
4: Um, it, it's groundbreaking. Uh, there's no doubt about it. And it's, uh, it's a sign that uh, the government provincial government is you know at the at the early stages of beginning to take some responsibility
5: mm-hmm.
4: uh, to actually provide some safer substances for people um, who use substances after all it's government policy that is creating the toxic drug market. Uh,
0: yeah, but that's I suppose that's our previous guest, Aris Nix from Cor- uh, from Dolph was saying that you know he said I can't believe it's not safe supply that they're announcing. He was sort of addressing the fact that this is a alternative to drugs, and he said drug users want their drugs, so maybe it's not far enough because it's not true supply of the drug that people are addicted to.
4: Yeah, it's not it's it's not a broad enough array of substances for sure, and that we need to get there very quickly. The whole point is to uh meet people where they're at and and if they're using sort of a toxic uh a a drug that or a drug that they don't know the composition of that we need to give them a choice Mm -hmm. and uh the the priority here this is a harm reduction uh intervention the priority is here that they they not have a need to access the illegal drug market so we basically are saying, look, we will provide you with safer substances, mm-hmm. and um, all the other things in your life, you know, will be easier easier to take care of and, and address uh, if you uh, don't have to worry about dying every time you uh, use a substance.
0: Obviously, doesn't take into account all the other factors like social networks and all those things that come as part of this. But the plan rollout is something that you're, I, I saw that you're somewhat critical of because. We had a pandemic this past year, uh, where we found a solution for that with, and 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 got it rolled out uh, in a year and a half. Uh, and here we have uh, another kind of pandemic, killing people everywhere. And we, it's the timeline is, you know, longer.
4: Yeah, that that was very. I mean, safe supply has been called for for several years now and i think what you're seeing uh in the uh, actions of Dolph is just uh, they're 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 fed up they've mm-hmm. uh, people involved with dolf have lost tens 20s 30 people uh, colleagues friends family uh, over the last few years uh the numbers uh, as you know are just, just terrible um, so you're really, I think we're beginning to see the end of a of a drug policy uh, prohibition mm-hmm. uh, that mm-hmm. is um, uh, mountains of evidence show that it is an extremely mm-hmm. harmful criminalization has been harmful. Even the Canadian Association of Chiefs of Police get that mm-hmm. now.
1: Mm-hmm.
4: Um, it's time for us to move on and do what we do with most substances, as Eris was mentioning, we regulate them. Uh, there is a consumer safety uh, ethic around uh, substance use uh, with legal substances. Mm-hmm. There is no sense of consumer safety uh, when people use illegal substances, and that's that's got to be taken up by government actions because it's government
0: policy that creates the toxicity in the market. All right. Well, baby steps, I guess, in in that case for the government. And and maybe we'll see more action as time goes on, as they get used to it. Thanks uh, very much for joining me, uh, uh, Donald. Okay. Thank you. George Affleck in for Jill Bennett today, and I hope you're enjoying the show. A uh, bit cooler out there today, not quite as hot, so that's maybe a relief to many people in the Lower Mainland. Uh, feel free to call our buzz line anytime today, 604-331-2899, if you want to give us your thoughts on what we've been talking about. Um, and if you want to reach out to me on Twitter, my, my Twitter handle is at George underscore Affleck, or if you want to email me, George at CKNW. So yesterday it was announced that cruise ships should be allow- would be allowed into uh, Canadian ports as of November 1st. I spoke to Claire Newell, who you just heard, but she's from Travel Best Bets, but- and here's what she said about the announcement yesterday.
6: Yeah, but you know what, though? For, as a Canadian citizen... If we have this July 21st deadline, six days from now, and the government decides that they're going to push it another month, Mm -hmm. that means it pushes it to August 21st, we'll be in election mode by then because all the rumblings are saying that it's going to be early August. We as Canadians go into this hold mode, no decisions are made, like caretaker mode or whatever during election period.
0: Sorry, that's the wrong clip. We'll play that one later. We have another clip related to the ships. There oh, was some kind of good news with the with the cruise line, right, today, the cruise I don't train? know. Okay. November 1st? What, no, it's not good was news. Was it? I okay. don't know. You well, tell me. You're the expert. I don't know. Okay.
6: So for the cruise industry, the Alaska cruise season ends before November 1st. And so, too, does the cruise ship season <laughs> outside. Uh, so really? Um, okay. Well, okay. So Canada and uh, – like, Eastern Canada and New England, those types of cruises, they – They end around that time, too. All of the cruise lines have actually got their itineraries, you know, into at least early next year. I think there was a lot of hope that this would be put out. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think that they wanted this dealt with because – um, they want to ensure that that passenger vessel services mm-hmm. act, which means the technical or at least a stop if you're a foreign built ship has to be in, fo- in a foreign country and we check that box, which is right. why our cruise ship industry has done so well. Vancouver, Victoria, Prince Rupert, and I they're all on the um, on certain itineraries and mm-hmm. it's really, really great for our economy. What we want to make sure is that the the bill that was passed to bypass, can canada for this year Mm -hmm. doesn't continue and i think that's what this does but for me they it it was said that it was a intends to pass this Mm -hmm. so the legal draft isn't done and the signing of that order when is that going to be done that's months away the other thing that Mm -hmm. was mentioned in this was canadian health protocols have to be followed but which ones like they didn't specify anything have right. You, yeah, I guess. But, <laughs> okay. but which one specifically?
0: Anyway, uh, I, it's good and bad news. Good, bad news. Good or bad news. I, I you know, Claire got me all confused, to be honest. I, I it's there seems to be good news. There seems to be bad news. Join me now is Wally Wargolet, executive director of the Gastown Business Improvement Society. Gastown, along with hotels in the city, are, have been seriously impacted by the loss of the cruise ship industry. Uh, hi, hey, Wally, how's it going? Hey, George, doing great. Thanks for having us on today. Yeah. So you heard Claire and what do you what are your
1: thoughts? <laughs>
7: Well, I mean, I, I, certainly some of the things that she said, um, I certainly can't disagree with. Mm-hmm. Um, we do see this in the neighborhood, though, as at least a step forward in the right direction. Um, we're looking at uh, this as at least to have some optimism that in 2022, the, the cruise ships will come back to uh, to Vancouver and uh, the, the passengers that, uh, you know, we're talking about a million people in 2019.
0: Mm-hmm. We, you know, we can get some of those folks back.
7: And yeah. I do think, you know, yeah, go ahead. No, I think there is certainly some concern with the U.S. law. There's no question about that.
0: Yeah, I mean, that is a big concern. That's bigger than the, than the gas town <laughs> your neighborhood can probably take care of. But we're looking to the federal government to fight that fight for us. But how, ba- how bad is it down there right now? I mean, describe to me what it's like to be running a business down there.
7: It's been, certainly there's been a struggle, um you know, over the the, the pandemic, uh, some of our businesses, um, you know, experiencing, you know, revenues down up to 90%. Now, that's the bad news. The good news is over the course, even the last uh, couple of weeks, we've really seen an influx of um, both provincial and Canadian travellers in the neighbourhood. The vibrancy that uh, I think folks know Gastown for is, is certainly coming back mm-hmm. uh, uh, we have our uh, over 30 patios in, in Gastown, over 500 patio seats. We're seeing those filled up. So while we would love to have that tourism sector back in full, full steam, um, we have some amazing locals who continue to support this neighborhood, and and the Canadian tourists who are supporting us. And and so yeah, we're 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 starting to see some some real positive foot traffic in the neighborhood.
0: How, how what are some of the stories that in the past year we talk a lot about you know businesses uh, you know big and small and the ones that sort of inspired you you go wow i can't believe they pulled that off <laughs>
7: Well, I think there's there's a lot of that. Just, I mean, if you look at the the restaurant sector in its, uh, itself, um, you know, we've, uh, fortunate enough to, uh, we've lost a few restaurants, but those spaces have been re, uh, retaken by new spots. Um, some of those, uh, you know, we had the Irish Heather leave the neighborhood, but mm-hmm. uh, Smith's moved back into their space. Um, you know, we've had some of those stories. We had some folks that closed. We had uh, Six Acres that, that had shut down for a little while. Uh, that's reopened. Uh, we have the lamp lighter in Clue club that are going to be reopening here next month. So mm. to me, I think it's just the resiliency. I think that's the part that is fantastic. And uh, I think the other story is just the, the local support in in keeping um, the lights on in, in Gastown during the pandemic. Uh, we've lost some businesses, but we gained some. And uh, I think we've, we're going to get through this. I think that's the, that's the real message.
0: That's the, well, that's good. I was going to ask you that about the impact and how they can survive another year until you know, basically things don't heat up until what the cruise industry may May, June?
7: Generally around there. Yeah. Uh, but, you know, I think the other good news is if we do see the, the uh, borders opening as it was announced today too, the, the land borders, mm-hmm. um, you know, we can start to see some of that tourism um, start to hit here. I know we, we had some concierge tours yesterday and we were talking to some of those folks at the hotels and, you know, they're starting to see their capacity increase um, and then we're doing everything we can to make this neighborhood a place to stop. We've got uh, on Thursday nights we have live live music throughout the neighborhood, um, and we're doing all-day happy hours on Thursday. So I think mm-hmm. a combination of just the local and some of that tourism traffic that's coming back, even though we don't see those cruise ships, if we can get some, some of that just normal tourism uh, back from the states, I, I think we'll, we'll see some real positive numbers
0: come through here. The patio culture obviously helps, but also rebuilding uh, Water Street would be a priority. I know you've talked about in this past, was there any movement on what might be happening? I know even as a former city councillor that it was in the budget. It was there for several, <laughs> three or four capital budgets, had the money set aside to do, redo uh, Water Street. And yet there it is still the same as it was when I was a kid in you know, the early 1970s.
7: Yes. Well, um, I think there is some disappointment there that I share with you, George, um, um, I'm, I'm new in the role here as mm-hmm. the executive director, but I was a board member for many years, and you're right. We've been talking with the city about that for over over a decade, and I think that the unfortunate part is the pandemic is going to delay some of that. The good news, though, is um, we've done our own urban design study uh, called uh, – and a program we're calling Gastown Tomorrow – and. All of that was meant to help the city in identifying what does the community want to see for Gastown in the future, and we're working on that plan. In fact, uh, we have some really interesting things happening here uh, from a community feedback perspective. So if folks are interested in learning more, I would suggest they go to Gastown.org, uh, and they can find information about Gastown tomorrow if they want to participate in that. And there'll be more things that we'll be announcing over the next few uh, few months about how they can participate and also sharing those findings with folks. Because we we do want to see that happen, I agree with you um, it, it's time for the city to make an investment in this national historic site that we're very, very proud of and um,
0: is an amazing part of our of our city. The relationship you have with the china Chinatown Business Association is pretty strong, but you're in between the two of you. There's Hastings Street, and there's all the things. And we heard earlier about you know our current city councilor who was handing out drugs in the area, roughly, um, you know, as as part of a protest, um, you know, for, with good reasons about safe supply and all those things. But if you go down Hastings Street. It's it's quite a shock to anybody, especially if a tourist heads over mm-hmm. there. How do you deal with that, and how does the Chinatown uh, Business uh, Improvement Association uh, deal with that uh, that anomaly in the middle of you, both of you?
7: Well, I mean, we're with with Hastings Crossings as well as another BIA and Chinatown. You're right. We do. We work with those executive directors, um, but ultimately, it comes down to the support that we need from federal, provincial governments to help us with some of these issues. And um, we had a a meeting with uh, Attorney General David Eby a couple weeks ago, and, and and stressing our concern about some of the social issues that are impacting um, not only the downtown east side, but then the impacts that have has on the various neighborhoods. And we're we're getting positive signs that there is some investment coming around um, complex care to help some of these folks. So uh, I think we just have to keep are elected politicians um, aware of the issues and making sure that we're seeing real change. Uh, we just have to we have to see a different direction taken, George. Uh, the status quo has not worked, will not work. And so we need to see some real policy changes happening. And, and we're working. Like I said, we're working with provincial and even city officials to try and get some of those changes happening.
0: All right, Wally, thanks for joining me today. Thank you for having us. I appreciate that. We've been talking all morning about this here. Could Canada open up its borders to fully vaccinated travellers by mid-August? What kind of appetite is there to visit Canada from Washington anyways? I'm joined by Len Saunders, Blaine immigration lawyer. Hey, Len.
8: Hi, George. How are you? Good. Last time we
0: spoke, you were trying to get uh, the app to get across the border working. Did you ever get across?
8: So I actually gave up on crossing. And the reason why is my uh, negative COVID test expired. And I'm hearing a lot of uh, situations where Canadians who are using this new uh, non-quarantine exemption were still being called by the RCMP and Canada Border Services Agency making sure that people were doing the 14-day quarantine. So I figured I would wait until there was no longer any sort of travel restrictions before I returned to Canada myself.
0: I think that's, uh, people are facing that kind of confusion and frustration in general. We, we spoke to Claire Newell, uh, who is a travel expert and she was talking about how complicated it is and people are just so frustrated and worried. And, you know, uh, she even said, said that, you know, with the federal election coming that, you know, that the borders may not even be open in in a, in a big way until November. What are your thoughts on that?
8: Well, it's interesting because I was very confident the American border was going to reopen on June 21st. Everything that I've been told and saw made me think that the border was going to fully reopen, at least coming into the U.S. I've given up guessing now. So now when it seems like there's going to be this kind of gradual reopening, now that Canadians can return to Canada under these modified uh, entry restrictions with the Mm -hmm. no-corting pins are now going to be allowed into Canada sometime in August, I think you're going to eventually see the border open. But it's not just going to be a, a complete reopening. It's going to be gradual. So I'm guessing now fall, maybe Christmas time, when you finally see all of these restrictions lifted completely
0: it's I think that's quite surprising to a lot of people and I think with that federal election right in the middle too that makes it really challenging for our government to change policies to switch things around you've got the writ drops you've got then eight four to eight week election time uh, and so that that timeline is sort of what she was predicting as well is is that fair I mean we get a lot of people calling into the show saying they I think there's General, I think I think we're caught in a bit of a um, polling situation here where the, the party in power in Canada is going, you know, 75% of people want to keep the borders closed, so let's keep them closed. Even if logically, potentially, there's lots of science, it no need for this, but for politics and PR, keep it closed.
8: Oh, absolutely. I think for the Liberal government, it would be political suicide for them to just open up the border. There's many Americans who are not vaccinated. I've been fully vaccinated since February, mm-hmm. but that's not you know, your average American. Many Americans are not interested in getting vaccinated, and I don't think they will. The numbers have almost plateaued at the percentage who are being vaccinated or who have had vaccination. So I think the Canadian government is being smart politically by allowing only certain groups of people in, first Canadians who are fully vaccinated, mm-hmm. then Americans, and then it sounds like maybe in September, other international travelers. So I think the government is doing the prudent political move by doing this slow reopening to travelers back to Canada.
0: Political move, that's always a great thought. I mean, I think that's what gets people frustrated. That must also be frustrating for people in Washington who want to come across the border. What's the mood over there?
8: Oh, absolutely. So many of my neighbors, friends, um, clients, They want to go to Canada. They want to go skiing up to Whistler. They want to go, you know, uh, fishing on the West Coast. So Mm -hmm. many Americans have been frustrated not by, you know, being able to go up to Canada. So I am getting a lot of calls from Americans who now have heard this announcement by the federal government allowing Americans in a limited, you know, fully vaccinated situation to enter. So there is some excitement, but until you see a full reopening with Canadians coming down, grocery shopping, Americans going up, you know, skiing for the weekend. It's going to be a while before things get back to normal at the border.
0: And from your understanding, when those people make that call to you, what do you tell them? How do you explain it to them so that people up here can go, okay, there will be people coming here to spend some money up here?
8: Well, I tell the Americans that, you know, they're going to have to be fully vaccinated. They have to do the app. They still may be deemed inadmissible, obviously, if they have other issues like criminal history. But it, it's almost like a moving target. Nobody knows the answers. Even right. a few of the CBSA officers who I've known for years, they tell me they're not fully aware oh. of any of the current or future um, you know, policy changes with the border. So there's always this confusion. And I always yeah. tell Canadians, you know, until you get to the border – or Americans, until you get to the border and seek country, you're not going to know exactly... What's
0: going to happen? We heard a story yesterday that this person went down there. Couldn't One person w- couldn't get across from the family. Uh, they were turned away going down. Uh, I guess they all had dual passwords. And, and they can't, so they stayed here another day and then went down and did, tried it again, and they got across. So it seems like that's true, that there's inconsistency as on both sides and confusion, not only with uh, people, as everybody, but, uh, yeah, the border crossing uh, agents, which is, makes it ultimately challenging.
8: Well, it's interesting, George, there's always been inconsistencies at the border for yeah. years, but now with these changing policies, it's even more inconsistent. So, And that's one of the reasons myself as a dual, I haven't entered Canada. I know I really wanted to a few weeks ago, mm. and then I double thought and thought, you know what, maybe I should just stay away until it's fully reopened and then there's really no confusion and no inconsistencies.
0: Is that what your recommendation is to our listeners here on either side of the border, is just, you know, just wait?
8: Oh, absolutely. A lot of Americans, I've said to them, why are you going up there? And they say, well, I just want to go up there for a short trip. I'm like, you know what? I would stay away until there's a full reopening. Both governments really don't want people, the casual travelers, to go back and forth. The border is open for the business travelers. Um, it's fully, re- you know, you can go back and forth as long as your essential business travel. But, you know, they're trying to discourage your, your average person going back and forth. If you have a dying relative or a medical issue and you need to travel, yes, of course, you know, try traveling, you know, either way. But if it's just for a brief trip, I don't think it's worth the hassle at this point.
0: All right, Len, thanks very much for joining me today.
8: Thanks, George. Have a good day.
0: George Affleck in for Jill Bennett today, and she'll be back on Monday. Before the break, we heard from a Blaine immigration lawyer uh, about, uh, he basically said, stay at home. He said, don't bother going across the border uh, because of the, you know, the sort of confusion and all these things about, you know, what we should do and the rules and regulations and when it's going to happen. And anyways, joining me now is someone who has been very vocal about opening the borders. Brian Calder is president of the Point Roberts Chamber of Commerce. Hi, Brian.
9: Hey, Dirt. Uh Len Saunders, Saunders summed it up perfectly. It's a bureaucratic and political nightmare, <laughs> 17 months and counting. Uh,
0: yeah, and I think that, and his advice, as I said, was just, just stay home and it's just no point. There's just too confusion. You go to the border, you don't know what's going to happen. Even the border crossing guys are confused. You go to one guy, he'll say one thing, and another person, she'll say another. It's like uh, that. that kind of inconsistency is troubling, isn't it?
9: Well, I don't envy them trying to interpret the rules that come out of the bureaucracy of uh, health can. I call them health can't. Um and trying to figure out that form. you have to fill up in advance 14 different items to do, put in your COVID testing, drag and drop it into the I mean, it's just bedlam. Absolute. It's just so frustrating. People give up and yeah. everything else they've been beaten up for for the last 17 months, even though they're full of full protocol vaccinations. As Len says, he was vaccinated in February. I was double vaccinated by 15th of March. I'm no threat to anybody. Eighty five percent of our people in Point Roberts have been double vaxxed already. And yet we're treated like we're in a penal constitution.
0: You know, he, he touched on this, that it's politics to a certain degree. There's an election coming, it looks like. Uh, the way the math works out, the writs dropped, you know, there's this and that. By the end of it, it's all we're looking at fall, if not December, as late as December, when things will get to kind of normal. Is that even sustainable or can you survive that? Can Point Roberts businesses survive that?
9: No, we've missed a full summer already, of course. And our marina, for example, went from 850 vessels down to 181. And our marketplace is losing $30,000 a month for 17 months. Uh, It's outrageous. Uh, And, of course, as you know, we don't have doctors here. We don't have a pharmacy. We don't have a department store. We don't have a veterinarian. All of that we access primarily in Canada, in Greater Vancouver, actually, mm-hmm. uh, the Lower Mainland, and denied that for 17 months. So now you have to start over, go find a doctor, if you can find one uh, that's available in Bellingham, two international borders away. And we've had people who, for veterinary reasons, a uh, uh, doctor they, they ended up in Seattle for a back operation for their dog. I mean, and they could have had it done five miles away in Ladner. And I mean, you go by... We're, we're no threat to anybody.
0: You go by boat across there, right? To How do you guys get there?
9: We can travel through Canada if okay. it's essential, and we do not stop. So they time you going across. Really? I go across, and the, guys, the the border says, okay, Brian, I guess you didn't stop anywhere you got here <laughs> in 27 minutes. So they know every move we're making anyhow, and we're not making any wow. bad moves. But until... Joe Biden, the president of the United States, does something about the U.S. border. We're not going to have anything meaningful because we survive in Point Roberts off Canadians. Mm Seventy five percent of our properties here in Point Roberts are owned by Canadians. Seventy five percent. Where else in North America would you see that statistic?
0: Mm-hmm. Parts of Arizona, maybe I don't know, but uh, so some small towns. What what is uh, you know that's that's the challenge. I mean, you're and and Americans didn't have the kind of subsidies to businesses that Canadians did, did they? Like, no, th- there was not, no, certainly not here. Yeah,
9: certainly not in Point Roberts. Although, you know, lately our governor and all the legislators in the Washington state have said, "Open the Point Roberts border on a pilot basis, a pilot project," because we've offered to vaccinate. Canadians who own properties here sure. if they're allowed to come down. Right. We'll vaccinate them. Nope. Premier says, no. Nope, we won't hear of that. Well, well what they... are you talking about? We'll do a 1,000 Canadians from the lower mainland and vaccinate them now. Fully vaccinated mm-hmm. now. And they say no. I mean, that, to me, that's irresponsible.
0: There doesn't seem to be any desire by either governments to have any kind of vaccine passport either, in a big way.
9: No, no. And when they talk about oh, well, we've got to invent a new bureaucratic system or we have to <laughs> register all those Gross. in a central agency to prove they're not fraudulent. Who would bother fraudulently doing a vaccination card? For gosh sakes, they'll be barred from the country for life if they ever got caught. And how are you going to police it anyhow? You can't police phony driver's license. Even phony passports get, get made these days in, in this day and age. So what like likelihood do you think you're going to have to have a central registry for vaccinations that you have to present at the border? It's absurd. Absolutely absurd.
0: So, uh, you know, it's, it doesn't seem very hopeful on your front for anything to happen, though.
9: No, it, it doesn't. I mean, as long as the bureaucracy and the weak need uh, of the politicians and they say, oh, he might be playing politics. Tr- really? He's a politician he survives on playing politics. I I am I'm amazed people so, so even use the phrase he's playing politics. Well, he's a politician. It's like <laughs> saying, "Oh, that plumber, he fixes leaks." Yeah, that's what he does. Like no surprise there.
0: All right, Brian, thanks for joining me today. I appreciate it. And good luck, and we'll uh, keep our fingers crossed that maybe, you know, we'll see some speed speed up of this process.
9: Thanks for your support, George. I appreciate
0: it. George Affleck in for Jill Bennett today. Jill will be back on Monday after her two-week vacation, which I'm sure she is relaxed and ready to get back to it. So, you know, we're seeing some devastating images coming out of Europe today. Massive floods are causing untold damage. But a recent NASA study suggests that climate change's impact on rising sea levels will only be ampl- amplified by the moon's gravitational pull, causing persistent high tides. To talk about this sort of double whammy, I'm joined by Mubdi Rahman, uh, founder of Principal of Sidrat Research. Hi, Mubdi. Hi there. Thank you so much for having me. Oh, thanks for joining me. So, we assume that climate change is the only cause of what's going on and what we're seeing, especially when it comes to flooding. But there's actually more to this story, and you know, how does the moon impact
5: things? yeah so I mean one of the crazy things that 's coming with climate change is that it basically amplifies all of these effects that would otherwise not really be much of a problem they 've been having happening for billions of years, but because of you know, climate change mm-hmm. we 're seeing their like their impacts increase significantly, and the moon is a huge one because of its effects on tides it,
0: I think people still kind of go well. It seems weird to me, I guess, to a lot of people. Like, how does the moon relate to the tide? Like, how does that, how do we understand that to work in general? And then
5: how does, why is that changing? Sure. Okay. So, I mean, it's actually a kind of a fun thing to think about. Mm -hmm. And it's all about gravity, essentially. Mm -hmm. Uh, And what happens when, you know, you can imagine we, you know, the Earth has gravity. We have gravity. We're being pulled down towards the Earth. uh, And that's what we, you know, normally feel and experience on a daily basis. But the moon also has some gravity, right? It's you know, mm-hmm. much, much further away. It's much smaller. And we don't typically feel it. So when, you know, we're, you know, at, you know, when you're sitting right in your studio right now, the mm-hmm. moon's slightly pulling on you, ever so slightly. You're never going to feel it. It's not going to matter to you in your daily life, but it's there. However, water does feel it because there's so much water on the surface of the Earth, and it's free to move you have a slight difference in the amount of gravity depending on where the moon is. Okay. And so when, when the moon is directly overhead, the amount of gravity that the water feels is slightly decreased from the Earth because you're also being pulled up by the moon a little bit. And that's what's causing the tides.
0: Okay, so that causes the tide. So why does it change and why is it evolving? Shouldn't the moon just uh, stay the same?
5: Yeah, so one of the crazy things about the way, you know, the solar system and the moon in particular and the moon with relationship to the sun um, is is that they're not all perfectly aligned, right? They're really Mm -hmm. close to being aligned, but not absolutely perfectly. And so what that means is in every orbit of the moon, we get a little bit of like a topsy-turvy motion, Mm -hmm. ever so slightly. It doesn't, you know, take a long time to sort of wobble In fact, it takes about 19 years to complete a full wobble. But if you imagine you're spinning a top, uh, you know, Mm -hmm. if you don't get it absolutely perfectly, the, you know, the center pin of the top moves around a little bit. And that's essentially the same thing that happens with the moon, is that it wobbles. And the cycle of that wobble, because it's 20 years, only every 20 years do you get back to the same place where the wobble was in the same area.
0: So things get back to normal then after a while?
5: Uh, no, it just it keeps on going. It's a, it's a constant cycle. Just like we're constantly moving around the sun, this wobble is constantly happening. But what it does change, however, mm-hmm. is that you... Where the wobble happens to align with the sun, and this is where it gets a little more complex to think about. But again, it comes back down to gravity. Mm -hmm. The sun also has some gravity, right? The sun is pulling on the earth, and that's what keeps us rotating around it. Uh, but if the moon and the sun are aligned, what that does is actually slightly increases the tide a little more. And the challenge with this is that it doesn't just work like you can you can't just add up the forces you need to actually it's much more complicated than that and it can produce much more catastrophic impacts Right? and in, in science, we often talk about it as being nonlinear. And all that means is that things don't just add up like you would think they would normally do. They seem to you know, catastrophically add up. And that's what the study was trying to, study, okay. trying to look at.
0: So even without climate change happening, would we have seen significant impact in the say, next several years because of this, this, uh, this, this wobbling?
5: Well, it's it's that we have it's uh, and one of the things that the study attempted to do is look in the past at how this wobble affects it. As you can imagine, this is all super complex, and so it's really difficult to just sit down on a path, you know, with a pen and paper and try to like calculate what's actually happening. And the hmm. best way of doing this is looking at data from previous wobbles uh, and what was what was occurring and what. The scientists who were working on the study had found is that on those days where the you know the moon and the sun were aligned very very well, you get a higher probability of having tide events, you know, high water tide events mm-hmm. um, where you know tide could break through uh, you know a lot of you know, normal level at that location, and so that would happen normally, but because of global climate change and the seawater rising, the amount uh the number of times that this is happening has increased over the past you know 20 and 40 years and so that's the big thing that they've been seeing
0: and and this is and is it different will it be different in different parts of the world i mean we're seeing you know weather also has i guess something to do with flooding um climate change being part of that but in general weather you know if if the ice melts faster or whatever but Will the moon be, you know, different in different parts of the world? I mean, and especially, how? What about us in the West Coast? How will we be impacted by this wobble?
5: Yeah. So a lot of it happens uh, is really dependent on. Uh, you know, partially the weather, but actually a lot to do with the shape of the coastline and currents. It's the same reason that the tide's not the same height and everywhere you go in the world, mm-hmm. right? On the West Coast, you, you know, you're very familiar with the tide, but it's not like the tide at, say, the Bay of Sunday on the East Coast, where it's massive. And that's solely due to the fact that the, you know, the the coastline is shaped differently. The way the water is flowing is shaped differently. It's all because the Earth is, you know, surprisingly complex. Hmm. Even if it's, even if it's just all coming down to gravity. But what this, what the study is saying is, if you look at the places that do have a higher chance of flooding mm-hmm. in general, they are as we continue to go and as we have more of these wobble events that, uh, you know seem to line up at certain locations, mm-hmm. any place that's already susceptible to these high water events and these high tide events um, is going to be only more susceptible coming in the future.
0: Because a, like, even like a, an inch, centimeters difference can make a huge difference.
5: Oh, entirely. That's right. Yeah, and especially given that we, we you know, in many places we build so close to the water mm-hmm. and we are determined to believe that the sea level is constant, but it's not, and we're, we're already seeing that.
0: And, and so do you think, what, what do you predict then for the West Coast here? I mean, we have had some really high tides where, you know, a couple of years ago where, you know, for example, at Kitts, where it went right into the pool there, uh, you know, covered that entire park, some weird anomalies. Is that going to become more and more, not only because of climate, war- warm, you know, climate change, but also uh, the moon's uh, wobble
5: effect? Yeah, I mean, I think it's going to be, it's sort of a a combination of the two that's going to cause more things like this happening, unfortunately. I think one of the benefits of much of especially, you know, lower British Columbia is you have the benefit of Vancouver Island, which really does help mitigate a lot of the bigger tide effects. Right. If you go down to, for instance, California, Mm -hmm. where they don't have, uh, you know, massive land body, you're, you're directly connected to the Pacific. Any sort of tidal change massively changes, you know, affects the water level. But you will see it in places that, you know, especially tidal bores, in places that are highly susceptible Mm -hmm. to flooding. You're going to see a lot more of this, unfortunately.
0: Fascinating stuff. Thanks for joining me today. I really appreciate it. Thank you so much for having me. George Affleck in for Jill Bennett into our last hour of the show and the last uh, hour for the week of our show. And Jill will be back on Monday after the weekend. Uh, as parts of the country move forward in their reopening plans, back-to-office plans are being announced. But experts are, you know, predicting a post-pandemic resignation boom as staff are refusing to return back to pre-pandemic work models. Whether it's because of the burnout, uh, the need to reskill, or a desire to, uh, for permanent remote work options, 57% of Canadians say they would re- reskill into a new career if given the opportunity. Looking at our neighbours to the south as a sign of what the future may hold for Canadians, a new survey actually found that 95% of American workers are now considering changing jobs in what's being called the Great Resignation. Joining me to talk about this is Jeremy Shankey, CEO of Lighthouse Labs, a Canadian tech education leader. Hey,
10: Jeremy. Hi, George. Thanks so much for having me.
0: Yeah, this is this is crazy. I mean, I'm I have a small business myself, and and I've you know I've seen some shifts in my staff in the last several months. Surprisingly, ones who I thought were long term employees, and suddenly they're they're gone. Uh, you know, what is this going kind to? Of, is this what we're going to expect for everybody? Is this what you foresee coming to?
10: I mean, it's definitely a lot of things coinciding at once that seem to make this very real. Um, You know, you see the recovery of the Canadian economy happening pretty quickly. Mm -hmm. A lot of people had been laid off, so they were rethinking what they were doing. And then the people who were just holding on to their jobs safely um, probably now feel a little bit more emboldened and have had a lot of time to think about what they're doing. And then the idea that everything has been a little bit more remote and people have gotten used to flexibility, mm-hmm. living in other areas, all this remote work element means that as people start calling people back to work, as a company start calling people back to work, I think there's this real desire for that experienced flexibility that people are looking for and they're staring that down. And you do see this really big rise of like tech companies in Canada and a lot of actually quite successful companies and they are putting a lot of pressure on talent recruiters are out at significant numbers Hmm. and the inflation of salaries has become something really serious that people are having to consider and they're getting opportunities and you know the one thing that I think the media is covering this quite a lot so employees are all seeing this but I think the funny part is I'd love to see the stats of those surveys, and we did one ourselves, but I'd love to see them before the pandemic, because when you just quoted the stat, 95% of people are thinking about leaving their job. I mean, <laughs> what, was the, what was the percentage before, right? I mean, I think yeah. people are always thinking. I think work is work. Work is not always happy, and there's a very obvious grass is greener, but with all this movement and all this momentum – it's quite clear that we're in a very unique period of time.
0: I think it's also, uh, because I have this experience as an employer myself, uh, the, the staff have had a lot of time to think about their lives and think about yeah. their careers and even apply for jobs without their boss knowing it. Um, and uh, they've just, they're coming to terms with maybe this new, not only how they work, but what they work at. Is that, is that what you're seeing as
10: well in your role? Absolutely. I mean, at Lighthouse Labs, we've seen some people leave. We're also hiring at a tremendous rate and looking to bring people over. I think the other, maybe the other underlying part with all the remote work and, Mm -hmm. you know, a lot of CEOs, that's exactly why they want people to come back to the office is there's probably a little less loyalty when you're not around the people all the time, Mm -hmm. right? The personal connections, the relationships you build, you know, you say it's easier for people to interview because they're not in the office. Well, it's harder to sneak away partly also because, you know, you're around everybody. And Mm -hmm. at this point, being around people hasn't been a thing for a while. And a change seems more realistic probably than ever.
0: The gig economy is a bit to do this too. And you look at outsourcing, you can, especially in the last year when so many people have gotten used to Zoom and all these different platforms, which makes it easier. You can, you know, that gig economy might be having an impact too. Hey, I I can employ somebody from anywhere in the world, not just in my town.
10: A hundred percent. I mean, it used to be the gig economy was very much for like a certain level of work, uh, task rabbits, the Ubers, things like that. But we're, I mean, at lighthouse, we tend to leverage a lot of people who are senior professionals in contract work opportunities who are making their own lives flexible, um, and come more companies than ever are open to it and learning how to work with that properly. And so because of that, you know, I think a lot of people are seeking their own personal flexibility in that way. And there's a lot easier of a time of getting those little jobs and those little roles um, that make it viable for you to maybe do your own thing and step away from the nine to five job, which Mm -hmm. we're seeing even a lot of articles about four day weeks, about flexible work days, Uh you know, it's, it's all coming. It's every, Everyone's talking about it and it's scaring the bejesus out of every company. <laughs>
0: uh, yeah, it's, it's certainly. And, and then the skills side too, because before the pandemic, we were at you know zero employment. I mean, there were defined people before that. And then the pandemic hit and chaos ensued and we, you know, whatever. And now we're getting back to some normality and it seems like the economy is bouncing back. So then we're facing this whole skills thing. We had a year where immigration wasn't happening, yada, yada, yada. All these things. It's like, my gosh, what's going to happen uh, for skills? And you must be facing that as well in your your role to get people skilled up and ready to work must be tough.
10: So, so while we're while we're definitely always eyeing our own employees and kind of doing everything we can to make sure they're happy and retained, mm-hmm. on the flip side, our school is seeing a tremendous influx of people who weren't who were a little bit more risk averse normally and we didn't see them coming into our space. Um, now they're coming for reskilling. So at Lighthouse Labs, we have 12-week intensive programs and then 6-month programs to help people become developers and data scientists. Um, and get them jobs, no experience necessary beforehand. But we're we are known for our outcomes in our jobs. Ninety three percent employment in one hundred and eighty days, as within the subject that we're looking at. And most of the people that come are somewhere between twenty three to thirty two. And usually, it was people who had already been very tech adjacent, mm-hmm. or um, you know, had certain skill sets that were kind of. It made sense that they took the risk um, at this point. We're seeing a lot of Canadians just make that decision and make the plunge. I think also technology's resilience during COVID just proved it. And then, like I said, there's been a really big growth of tech companies. So, yes, I think a lot of people are looking. And that, to me, George, I think for people looking to change jobs, I would tell you salary growth is a good enough reason if it's a really big jump. But mm-hmm. keep in mind that if things go back to normal, you will be the expensive asset that they signed to a little too much money mm-hmm. in their company at the moment. So you have to be aware of that. Um, but the other one is people saying, you know, I'm unhappy in my job. Well, moving jobs to do the <laughs> same role somewhere else Yes, doesn't really make you that much happier. <laughs> it's
0: called projection, I think. You know, <laughs> maybe it's uh, you that's I mean, unhappy true. and not the job. Um, yeah, and, and there's also this the hiddenness fear of inflation. When you talk about salaries and this comp- competition for paying people, that leads to inflation because you got to charge more for your whatever you're offering, and it's just a, a vicious little um, you know uh, slippery sure. slope.
10: Totally. But I think the I think the one thing that does make a lot of sense and we are seeing that and obviously it's to my interest to say so, but we have seen it as a fact is I think it does make sense if you're looking to change careers. I think the changing of careers, if you are unhappy, if you're not liking your job and you go, okay, why don't I like it? I think the only thing we've been missing in the past is this infrastructure to help people change quickly as opposed to needing to go to two to four year programs in order to kind of go into a different career set, but still leverage your experience. Mm -hmm. And schools like Lighthouse and there's a bunch of different schools doing a bunch of different things like this. They've really started, they've, they've had, this has been the year of our schools because there's a lot of people who want to do things in three months yeah. and move careers and change. And we're seeing a lot of that right and, now.
0: And you're seeing those in some of the traditional schools as well are embracing that idea as well. So to find programs that, yeah, six to 12 weeks where you can learn this or that. Uh, even my son who there was a course he did uh, at uh, Vancouver College you know this is a 12-week course in uh, making music and the music industry and how to survive in the music industry and how to write music and all this stuff and it was just like a b c d e this is how you do it and here's get out there and do it and You know, so even in that industry, you're seeing, you know, these courses that are available to get you skilled up and out there doing your thing that you're passionate about, which seems to be what a lot of people want to do. Although that doesn't always lead to more money, um, but it's certainly uh, it's certainly the dream to have passion and the cash at the same time.
10: Yeah, I think I think we've missed I think we've missed or underrepresented how important time is to people mm-hmm. when they are thinking about learning and training. And I'm a big, big proponent, just so everybody on your show knows of universities. I really do think a four-year program yeah. of when you're coming out of high school, is so much more than just the learning you're totally. taking in. It's the network, it's the critical thinking, mm-hmm. it's the time to make decisions in your life. But I think after that, and as you move forwards, you know, we don't have time to spend doing a lot of different things. Mm-hmm. And when there, we want to make a change, we should be able to make that change relatively quickly and a little bit more (laughs) Mm risk-free. And I think that's, that's, you know, that's what lighthouse looks at, but I think that's what real change in training has gone through. And Mm -hmm. I think that's opening up doors for people feeling more comfortable to reskilling, including all the online learning that you can do. Mm -hmm. That gives you like, you know, when we are online, but just the content and the Udemy's and the LinkedIn learnings and all these kind of things are really giving people, they're emboldening people to take chances.
0: It's also those things are great. And as an employer, and even for me, uh, the kinds of courses that you can take online sometimes are expensive, sometimes they're free. But all, learning is, to me, is like such a growth industry, obviously. But just as an important part of, you know, growing your career and being able to succeed, even if it's a one-hour, you know, webinar, it's amazing how that can impact what you do day to day.
10: Absolutely. And what do you think everybody was doing when they were locked in their house? Yeah. There was so many. There was only so many options. Spending a little t- the time learning. And building a new skill set is something that a lot of people did or they learned how to, you know, grow plants in their house. That's what I did. Um, <laughs> what kind of I wasn't, a, I wasn't, I wasn't a green thumb before, you know, I have a great little banana leaf tree here. Wow. I've got like, I've got, right. I've got some really nice plants and I couldn't have done that before. So I'm pretty Suddenly,
0: proud. Suddenly Jeremy leaves Lighthouse to become a gardener. That's right. <laughs>
10: succulents, succulents are not all I can do now.
0: <laughs> George Affleck in for Jill Bennett uh, into the last hour of the show. Jill will be back on Monday. So we're taking your calls now. 604-280-9898. 604 280 9898 nine, eight, and asking you about have you fully embraced working from home and, and what, what if you if you find a new job do you do you want to work do full time how do you, how's the the whole pandemic changed the way you think about how you work you know it, let's hear from you and Jeremy Shaki who's uh, going to continue to join me here from Lighthouse Labs we've got Rick from Port Moody
11: Rick, thanks for taking my call. Sure. You know what? I really think we're not going to see the full how this is fully going to play out for a number of years down the road. Initially, you're going to clearly get thousands of people that are going to say, "I enjoyed working from home." I mean, and why wouldn't you? You know, you're you're in your you know, I mean, your pajamas or, or your you know, you have the freedom to walk the dog and do mm-hmm. whatever you can. Um, and they're going to say, that's what I'm doing. If you don't like it, lump it. And, <laughs> and companies will just have to kind of adjust to that initially. But but eventually what's going to happen is is people will want to go back into the office because the, the companies will mm-hmm. say, you know, we're just not getting quite the productivity here out of these people. Let's fill these spots again. And you're going to end up with people that are either hardliners. They're going to have to start making essential oils or candles at home or they're <laughs> going to have to or, or realize that all of a sudden now if they are contractors and they're working at home all of the perks and benefits that they used to have yeah. um, medicare um, your dental that's all out of your pocket and the reality is going to come crunching home that um uh, there is a cost that, that's that right. you know you have to pay if you're going to be deciding to, to have that lifestyle and um and part of what you don't take into account for driving the traffic and sitting in an office uh, Are these extra things, and um, and it's going to take us years. I mean, it's you know two or three years before this this flushes out.
0: Thanks, Rick. That's really interesting, Jeremy. Your thoughts on that? Because it's true. There, sometimes you forget what your employer is paying for that you that you don't notice.
10: Totally. Uh, I mean, listen, Rick, Rick brings up, I think the most important point there is we don't know how this plays out for the mm. next two to three years. And I think not enough people are talking about the potential future implications. Yeah. Uh, the one thing I would disagree with Rick is on, when it comes to productivity, I'd say that I'd say there was a big myth mm. around remote productivity being really bad um, and people working at home being slower, not doing as much. Every piece of research that's been staring this down has actually showed that people are more productive at home than they are at the office yeah. and if you think about all now it depends on how you feel about the chatter the culture building the all those pieces um, but between taking car rides back in and out with traffic mm-hmm. and then all the stuff you do on the side within workplace the truth is is people are being more productive now to the point of what employers pay for i think the goal the idea of contract workers not getting benefits and i think this is stuff that people are trying to solve whether they can or can't and to Rick's point, whether people are discounted on that in the future, um, that has, that can have some really big implications. Mm-hmm. And I do agree that we'll have to see how that plays out.
0: Yeah, and, and technology gives you the ability to track time and follow every move a person makes at home. So productivity, you can control through some of the technology. Kathy from Burnaby, go ahead, Kathy.
1: Hi, how are you
0: today? Good, what's up? So what do you think?
1: Well, um, I'm, I find the show very interesting and I've heard other things, you know, through the news and everything. My question is to you, is, um, you know, you talk about, everybody talks about schooling and online schooling and getting into the classroom. You know, the one question I have, and my biggest concern is, is our food industry. Never mind just BC, I'm talking about right across Canada. Um, The people do not want to work in the food industry. Oh, I see. You know, they'd rather sit in front of a computer and play and do whatever. You know, we need, I mean, unfortunately, we need to be teaching our children from the start of education to where does our food come from? You know, all people understand is they go to the grocery store, they buy it. They don't understand all the hard work that goes into manufacturing that everybody buys. And, you know, I think it's time for people who do the teaching like yourself with your schooling and that maybe it's time to start reaching out for that kind of thing and start teaching people and trying to get them back into the food industry. All right,
0: Kathy, that's a really good point. Uh, Jeremy, Jeremy, real quick, you know, any five seconds response to that? I mean, dealing with other jobs that you just can't do at home.
10: Uh, I think that's going to be a huge problem for a lot of companies that want to do things in person and have those kind of constraints. I agree with Kathy.
0: All right, thanks, Jeremy, for joining me, and thanks, uh, Kathy, for your call.